Hello, and thanks for downloading this podcast from Teacher. I'm Joe Earp. My guest on today's episode of The Research Files is Professor Amy Cutter Mackenzie Knowles, Executive Dean of the Faculty of Education at Southern Cross University and Project Leader of the Childhood Nature Play Study. Now, the research team has been working with young children and their teachers to record their everyday nature play and its links to STEM learning. That information has been used to co-design evidence-based nature play experiences and a pedagogical framework called Mudbook. I'll be talking to Amy about nature play in education settings, the aims of this particular research study and some of its key findings. And she'll also be sharing details of some of the teaching and learning resources that have been produced. And a note that there might be a bit of background noise at times in this one from a dog that joined the podcast recording. Professor Amy Cutter Mackenzie Knowles, welcome to the research files. As I said in the intro there, you and your team have been researching young children's experiences and educators' conceptions of nature play as well. Um, what does nature play look like around the world and what did it mean in the context of this study? Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to talk with you today. In terms of what does um, nature play look like around the world, it's it's not a new concept, but it has been given a lot of energy over the last 10 years. So um, early childhood education very much has its roots in nature play with the with the word kindergarten meaning child and, and garden. Um, it's, a, it's a German word and comes from Frederick Frabel. But in the last 10 years, even now moving up to 15 years, there has been this rapid resurgence in supporting open, free nature play in education studies and um, or settings, I should say. And the reason for that has become has been because there's been this obvious um, or observation of children's of a decline in children's experiences in nature, and then the repercussions of that in terms of um, increased anxiety, um, depression, lack of physical activity, sedentary behaviour, and so on and so forth, as well as research showing the benefits of of time in nature, noting that, that human beings are indeed nature. So, of course, we have that natural affinity and connection. And so over the years, you, some of your listeners might remember um, there was an author or there is an author called Richard Louvre, and he talked about children suffering from nature deficit disorder from essentially that observation of, of having um, not enough time in nature. I don't quite see it that way. I don't see as children as deficit in that respect at all. Um, but I do see that they are in very much a changing set of circumstances where they have far more time on screens um, and far more time inside, therefore, on screens. And so their, their environments in some ways have opened up um, where there's this kind of interplay of the virtual environment versus the, the natural environment. Um, and it's too much of anything is probably never a good thing, which sometimes screens can certainly do. 
And so in that sense, there's been a, an active interest in, in understanding um, what children learn through nature play, uh, not just in terms of, of what are the benefits physically, socially, but what are the academic benefits. And for us, that was the real interest point was what, what are the actual academic benefits of nature play and specifically their scientific understandings. So um, we did a podcast with Claire Warden where we talked about the forest schools in Scandinavia and the examples in the UK, um, including the nature kindergartens in Scotland that she founded. So with this study then, am I right in thinking it was, uh, wasn't necessarily those full-on sort of nature schools, but um, some of it was just going outdoors and doing study, um, taking walks and so on. That's right. And so this particular study involved 20 early childhood settings across Queensland. Um, and there are 10 settings in southeast Queensland and 10 in central and north Queensland. There were some settings where they are 100% outdoors. Um, but there are other settings where they're on the fourth level of a high rise um, building in Surface Paradise. And so there was an absolute range of different um, early childhood settings across the study. And what we were wanting to do is really understand, well, what does nature play look like across all these settings, not only in, for instance, a nature play intensive um, early childhood Santa, for example. So, and that allowed us to do that through having that diversity. And uh, this research study is interested in the experiences of early years students, specifically the, how they learn scientific concepts through nature play. Um, we'll talk about some of those concepts in a moment, but why was the focus on STEM learning? Uh, why focus on science? So the reason for STEM is because um, I guess there are two reasons for, for focusing on STEM. One, that it's absolutely critical in terms of um, our future as a planet and how we understand the world scientifically, um, but also because there is a serious lack of research around this area of really understanding, well, what are children's um, scientific concepts through nature play? We do understand that more and more through uh, work like Marilyn Fleer's around Play Lab at Monash, um, but not so much in a nature play setting so or even incorporating nature play pedagogies and so they were the two primary reasons was one there's a serious lack of research around this um, but two there's an absolute priority for early childhood education and education broadly um, and in Australia to to really I suppose, up the ante in STEM education. And uh, you're Executive Dean of the Faculty of Education at Southern Cross University. But this was a joint research project involving SCU. Uh, there was RMIT University, uh, Swinburne University, uh, and then several other partners, including Nature Play Queensland um, and the Early Childhood Teachers Association, and of course, all those settings as well. Uh, how many children were involved in the study? And... Um, when I say involved, uh, you really did want them to take on an active role as um, researchers, didn't you? That's right. So um, so there were the, the 20 settings and then um, 152 children involved across all of those settings. 
um, and and thirty one teachers involved. And so, for us, um, getting to their role, the the methodology involved a number of phases, and the second phase was really working with the children as researchers, where they had their they were given a tablet to essentially document their play and learning across a week in their community, um, in their early childhood setting, at home. And it was really, that it was quite simply put to them, is document your nature play and what you see as nature play. And it was quite fascinating. There were so many videos of of children in a bedroom, for instance, with a a ladybug on their hand and and filming it crawling all over their body and... It wasn't necessarily outside. There was a, a really strong mix of inside activities but or inside play as well as outside play. So the other thing I've seen in your sharing of the, some of the findings is that you used a research methodology called cartography. Can you just explain a little bit about that for our listeners? Well, cartography is essentially it's a, a post-qualitative methodology, but it's a cartography is a map. Um, so cart is French for map and it's around really not just understanding um, children's for instance scientific conceptions but it's really about mapping them as well so that next step of seeing well what are the the ideas the um, the concepts across the entirety of the group but and so for us we were wanting to develop um, that complexity around the mapping of practices but also understandings and conceptions. So the project revealed that there are nine types of nature play. Can you take us through some of those? Sure. So um, I'll go through a couple of them. So there's, there's death play and that was a really common type of nature play which in some ways was a little surprising but also unsurprising as well because death is is part of life and so children were quite fascinated in that concept of death and animals and I'm quite it's often the first experience that children have of grief is the death of an animal and for many children um, it looked different though so for instance at one of our sites at Birdwings Forest School so that's the setting where they are 100% outdoors they observed a dead kookaburra over a six-month period and so there was quite fascinating conversations that we observed around decomposition over that period and seeing really the, the kookaburra go from being looking like it's asleep to, to being bones. And the children's fascination over that period around the concepts and what was happening and including things like um, who was eating the kookaburra and what were the next steps, even stories around spirit of the kookaburra and to cultural myths and stories and to to there would be there were other um examples in other settings where um you know they came across like a dead snake and looking closely at that and um to others where the pet goldfish died and 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 so there was that was quite surprising I guess in terms of its commonality as a common nature play pedagogy um, and this really important conversation around death and grief, which 
I think it's fair to say in Western countries, we're not always so great at those conversations. And so it was, it was quite heartening to see that happening in that sense, both from a scientific point of view, but cultural. In terms of some other types of nature play, so there was um, slow play or slow nature play. And, and that doesn't, what that meant is, um, and what we often observe there. And, and the kookaburra story I just told is a, is a good example of that as well, where it happens slowly over time, but it's also over seasons as well, is taking, having long periods of time um, so that you can actually observe the seasons, but also what's happening in that place over that time, but also in the moment as well. Um, I saw so many so many experiences where where a child would be deeply engaged um, in investigating a, a puddle for example and and not kind of splashing and jumping up and down all all through it but actually really observing what's happening in there um, and that's what I mean but it's a bit like the slow food movement is really slowing learning down which I think is so important in such a fast-paced society uh, that we do that and nature play again affords for that to happen. Did you do any thinking about why these experiences in particular support learning as opposed to say just watching a video or, or even watching a video every week of something happening over time? Um, I'm just wondering is it that sort of sense of awe and wonder? What is it about nature play itself? We did. Um, I think it's it's about being in the experience itself. And you can, for instance, watch the decomposition in fast time of a dead kookaburra over probably a minute. But there, it really says something when you actually watch it in real time over six months. Um, and as part of your other pedagogies like walking and which with these group of children, that's what they would do every day is go on these walks so they would see the dead kookaburra every day. Um, so in that sense, it, it's about having experiences that perhaps you've never had before. And, and when you're watching from the periphery of a video, it's not really your experience. You're watching the experience of another. And that can be enjoyable and you might take something from it. Um, but as we know, and we've known for hundreds of years through work like John Dewey, that the powerfulness of, of that in-person experiential learning and then having profound impacts on ultimately who you come to be. And a lot of children, and when you, when you talk to, for instance, environmental scientists, scientists about, you know, what were some of your profound experiences that led you to being a scientist for example and they'll talk about things like this that it was being out on trail or it was camping with their family um or they'll talk about you know profound forest school experiences or they'll remember some of their earliest memories um of of being in nature and uh, building a fort or engaging with it in some way and relating. So I think that's why it's so critical. 
yeah, and of course there are lots of links uh, to science there in terms of the curriculum and those foundations for things they're going to learn later on. So the other thing I wanted to touch on is indigenous culture. And um, you, you mentioned that with the kookaburra and the spirit stories and so on. I understand that several of the education settings that you worked with in the research project were indigenous focused. Mm. So we're, and we called that um, country play and or in place or country play. And, and it wasn't just a matter of um, doing, for instance, a simple acknowledgement at the beginning of, of each day or the beginning in terms of um, at the setting. It was then what was, what was so beautiful to see in many respects with regards to where Indigenous education is evolving was we would see it then enacted in the children's play. So, for example, like I talked before about the child who might be um, looking in a, a puddle and investigating all the different life in there and let's say then, um, and, I, and I observe this where the child says, oh, I'm, I might take this rock with me home and then seeing another child say, well, no, because we made a promise at the start of the day that not only... Um, that that we were paying respects to our past and, and present descendants upon the land, but also the land itself and the environment itself. And so you would be breaking your promise. And, and so seeing it enacted um, interactions between child to child and child to adult, it was a constant. And I think that's so important um, is seeing that, it's actually about a a different type of relationship. It's a, it's a it's a relationship about um, being in balance with with the or in relation with the land or with the environment, and seeing that these really young children, as young as three, four, and five, understood that. Where I see a lot of under, adults don't understand that, and. And so in that sense, you know, we, we observed that across a number of sites, um, which I, I hadn't seen that acutely before, not to that extent, to the extent of it being so solidly situated at the centre of their practice and where they'd worked with local Indigenous elders and community um, in, in getting their practice to that point where it wasn't something that just happened overnight. It had been a relationship over a very long period of time. And uh, what's exciting is the other thing that's come out of it, of course, has been sharing what's been learned during the project and how that can benefit teachers and leaders in the early years of schooling and perhaps beyond as well into older age groups. I'm sure there's lots of educators listening to this that will be keen to find out more about the strategies and activities that they could try out. You've produced a series of resources, haven't you? Mm. So we we wrote or co-designed the MUD book, which is a nature play pedagogical framework, and um, that was that was developed with and for teachers. And so throughout it, there's many examples of practice, which I know as a teacher myself is is certainly there's quite nothing quite like that hearing from teachers in their words or children in their words about their own practice and so there's many suggestions in there including around what some of the barriers are um 
uh, some of the risks and so forth and, and how some of these different settings have come at that. And, and all of the settings in the MUD book wanted to be clear in identifying um, their setting and the name of their setting because they very much see it as a community. And so like we, we do very well in um, education and schools and early childhood is, is simply reach out to them. If there is a particular setting where um, and you really res- that practice really resonates with you, um, I would encourage you to reach out to them as well. And we do have a Facebook site and a website and Instagram where you can make those connections as well. So we'll put uh, some links in the transcript of this podcast on the teacher site. Just head over to teachermagazine.com and click on the podcast tab or just search for Nature Play. Um, are these activities and ideas transferable to older age groups? So um, if you're teaching in, say, year two, is this something that could be adapted? Absolutely. And um, forest schools has been happening now for a long time, like you mentioned before, in Scandinavian countries and in the UK, and it's really been taken up all over the world. And and that's certainly happening in Australia too with forest schools and bush schools. And um, so it's not new to schools in that respect, but where it is somewhat newer is where it becomes an everyday pedagogy that it's not something that's just special that you do once a week or once a month and where it becomes integrated and embodied into the actual everyday practice. And that's something that I think is less understood in Australian schools. So that's a particular area of research that we're now looking to really open up um, and explore further and and how it could really look in on an everyday basis, for instance, in upper primary and secondary. And um, as I said, it's not like there's not nothing ha- happening. There's a lot happening. But where researchers can really help is helping to join the dots there, like we've done in this um, research project where we've essentially been able to really profile practices across 20 different centres and and how nature play looks in that regard and and we're looking to do something similar with schools. That's great. Uh, Well, the project has moved things forward in terms of our understanding of nature play and uh, as ever we wish you luck with the research expansion in the future. Amy Cutter Mackenzie Knowles, thank you very much for sharing your expertise with Teacher. Thank you for having me, it's been a pleasure. Thanks Jo. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Watch out for next week's episode of Teacher's Staff Room, where Dominique Russell will be taking you through content from November to catch you up on the latest evidence, insight and action. Subscribe to our podcast channel on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts from to receive a notification when any new episodes drop. And uh, a reminder that you can also access the 200 plus that are already in our archive also got a quick favour to ask. While you're there, we'd really appreciate it if you could rate and review us.